0: Always talking. In <laughs> uh, yeah. Italian sounds much nicer. Well, we'll the content. Yeah. Dance. He's content to be a jerk. He doesn't care who knows it. This is the Shut Up You're Always Talking podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Shut Up, You're Always Talking. I am pizza artist, Eric John. And before we get into it, let me tell you about my friend John Scambato over at Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club Soda has been making the best artisan sodas in the entire world for more than 100 years. Um, They're very well known here in Rhode Island, but you don't have to live in Rhode Island to enjoy their amazing sodas. Uh, You can go to yachtclubsoda.com, and you can order anything you want. They've got blue raspberry, grape, strawberry cream, root beer, uh, roadie red, strawberry, uh, lemon lime, orange cream. There's so many flavors you can choose from and it's the best treat uh, to have during the summer. When it's really hot outside, um, forget grabbing yourself a beer, forget grabbing yourself a a nice cold glass of water, get yourself a Yacht Club soda, it's the best. Um, Get to yachtclubsoda.com, order yourself some soda today. Okay, on the show today, I'm very excited to uh, be able to talk to uh, Hunter Folks. Hunter Folks uh, is a storm chaser. He goes out, uh, rides around, looks for tornadoes all over the Midwest. Uh, He's a meteorologist in training. Uh, He knows a lot about this stuff and he's got some really cool stories to tell. So I'm really excited that he's coming on the show today to talk to us. So Hunter, welcome to the show.
1: I'm happy to be here, man
0: all right so when did when did you start chasing storms
1: i started officially chasing storms back in 2009 when i went on my first storm chase
0: okay and okay and why did you do that
1: because first of all like if anyone ever wants to get to know me i am such a nerd and i absolutely love weather i love meteorology it's part of the reason why I'm in college. I'm currently studying meteorology. So I've just always been fascinated by the weather. And so I grew up watching all of these shows like the Weather Channel. Uh, I grew up watching Storm Chasers on Discovery. Uh, Basically anything that involved weather I thought was fascinating. Anything from National Geographic, etc. And so I always thought that severe weather, especially tornadoes, were so cool and i eventually got the opportunity to go chase because i had supportive parents and they thought i was crazy but also thought it was fantastic that i was so passionate about it and one day there was a storm nearby where i lived in iowa at the time and my parents saw me running in out of the house back and forth right uh looking at the sky, seeing the, the storm off in the distance and running back inside, seeing the uh, local meteorologists on TV talking about the storm. And after running back and forth from the house, my dad decided, why don't we go for a drive and go check it out and see what happens? And that's that's how it started. We didn't have anything fancy. It didn't have anything special. Just drove out at a storm and all we had was our car radio, which would tell us counties that the warnings were active for. So that is like the most bare bones you could ever have trying to find a tornado on a storm chase. And I got lucky and I got to see my first tornado. And from that point, I've just been hooked.
0: That's so amazing. So your dad took you out on your first storm chase? Absolutely. Yes. And how old were you?
1: Ooh, let's see. 2009. I was 12. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) That's that's incredible. Yep. Wow. Like most dads are taking their kid to like a baseball game or something. Your dad's taking you out to go like dodge hail and uh look for look for tornadoes. Um do you remember how big the tornado was?
1: I do. It was really tiny. We were probably about half a mile to up to a mile away from it. Really skinny tall rope like very very uh thin. Now tornadoes they're obviously much larger than we are, right? So you know something that's 100 yards wide 50 yards wide is still relatively big to an individual person but on the scheme of tornadoes it was really really tiny but it was just just beautiful very skinny very dark contrasty rope tornado touchdown kicked up a bunch of dirt and debris in this big debris column and i watched it rip the roof off a pig barn so i got to see roof go through the air and then it Traversed to my, uh, West going North and then dissipated in the field next to us. And, uh, yeah, magical experience.
0: That's amazing because half a mile is, you know, seems to me just like, again, I know nothing about storm chasing or storms, but it seems like that's a pretty decent, like safe distance. Am I, am I wrong about that?
1: It definitely depends on the tornado, the speed of the tornado and the overall behavior of the tornado, right? because some tornadoes like the first one i i saw was very small it kept to a nice tight vortex it didn't deviate rapidly and it was slow moving tornadoes can be giant they can be huge they can be moving at 60 plus miles an hour and if it deviates that's a problem right but in this case we were totally fine it wasn't going to get anywhere close to us i knew nothing about anything about tornadoes at the time uh, but we were we were totally safe, even in retrospect.
0: Wow! So okay, so after this happens, you're what, just like totally hooked, basically.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah! I've been chasing tornadoes since that that day, uh, and now it's my 15th season this year. Uh, wow! Looking for tornadoes.
0: So what What is it about tornadoes in particular that is so? attractive to you i guess for lack of a better term
1: no and that's uh honestly a a pretty valid question because uh some people obviously may or may not be super interested in them some people are definitely afraid of them right i mean they are forces forces of nature and their whole purpose is to destroy right that's the whole reason why they exist is they're a, a violently rotating column of air and Anything it touches it's going to destroy and so there's a obvious dark side that comes along with tornadoes and a lot of the question is why are you fascinated by them and the surface answer is because they're cool. (laughs) The more deep reason for me is that I've always just been fascinated by the weather. Um, For me, I personally grow up grew up in my childhood, which was in Phoenix, Arizona. And if you've ever been there or been anywhere in the desert southwest like Las Vegas or parts of California, Arizona, et cetera, uh, I stared at the sun for 300 plus days out of the year. So clouds are pretty freaking cool, <laughs> literally. Uh, anything to get out of that hot sunshine, right? My entire childhood was spent either in a pool or indoors, I swear. But, um, you know, you stare at the sun for so long. It's hot, dry, whatnot. But then when these monsoons would come rolling through and the sky would change color, get dark, vivid flashes of lightning, heavy rainfall, occasionally small hail if you're lucky, and sometimes, you know, the oft rarest of, of occasions you can get a brief tornado on on a stronger storm. And that's why I fell in love with weather, because it was so dramatic and contrasted from my regular everyday life and so from that point as a boy I've always just been so fascinated by weather which led me towards tornadoes.
0: Yeah I I know exactly what you mean because I I spent four years out in Colorado um, when I was in college and I spent one summer out there and it was this weird thing where like every day there'd be these big rainstorms that would come in over the mountains um, you know maybe for like a half an hour or an hour and then they'd go away but like every day you know you'd you'd see these, just these big, dark, rolling clouds come in from over the mountains and come down. And it was, you know, it it was, there was definitely like this awe-inspiring aspect to it. Um, you know, is, is there something also spiritual about it?
1: You know, uh, funny enough for me, there is some personal spirituality aspect to it. And it sounds slightly weird to say that, but for me and my personal beliefs and views on life, you know, I I feel very connected to nature. I feel very connected to the outdoors, the isolation, just a- appreciating the expanse that our world is. Right, um, it brings me a lot of peace and comfort, and I feel most like myself when I'm out storm chasing, out just the you know basic primal instinct of just. The hunt, the chase, the experience, the grandeur that is the mother nature, right? And just being able to witness the power and the beauty of it. It's very inspiring, but also humbling because you are it's viewing something much larger than yourself, right? Um, and it just, it always fills me with awe. have I've seen tons of tornadoes, tons of storms, and every single time they just fill me with so much like amazement. I've never not been amazed at a beautiful storm. It just it always captures my attention.
0: Has there ever been a storm that you've chased after or that you've seen um, that's captured you in this at the, to the same level that that first one did?
1: Oh my goodness, yeah! And every I swear, every year, every other year, you run into a tornado that just makes your jaw jaw go to the floor, and you just sit there and wonder what the heck is going on and how did I get lucky enough to be here? <laughs> this happens, it happens often enough that it really keeps you coming back.
0: And so one I imagine one aspect of this is that these things are kind of hard to predict, right?
1: Yes and no. Um, one being that here, at least in a little bit of a basic understanding here, the United States experiences a lot of tornadoes, more so than anywhere else on the globe. the reason for that is because of just very convenient geographic features warm oceans high based mountain ranges providing uh warm air aloft to cap more moist warm air below it um, strong powerful jet streams from the north that come south there's a lot of things that go into making severe weather and the united states has very favorable uh, geography that allows these things to occur so in the united states we experience about on average 1200 tornadoes a year, give or take a hundred or so, you know, depending on every year's fluctuate, um, fluctuation and variability. Um, but we, we get so many tornadoes here and it's really cool to see all of these fascinating things all come together and work so frequently around here.
0: How often do those tornadoes come into contact with people? Would you say?
1: often. And I hate that that's a, that's a problem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just twelve hundred sounds like, like a lot more than I thought.
1: Yeah. Most of the time, I mean, most tornadoes, they are fairly weak and there's a, a scale, maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you're not. Um, there was the F scale, the Fujita scale created by Dr. Ted Fujita. Um, nowadays we use a revised version, um, since we understand how, you know, debris is, Uh, causes what kind of damage and there's been better data and surveys on us so we have an enhanced Fujita scale which is a little bit more revised a little more refined and it's a scale from zero to five um tornadoes can range from zero to one which are weak tornadoes you've got ef2s to ef3s which are significant tornadoes and then you get ef4s and ef5s which are violent tornadoes and they all have a very rapid or a a vast change of potential damage that one can cause Right. but the nice thing is that these stronger, significant tornadoes from two, three, four, and fives are a lot more rare than most tornadoes. Now, granted, the EF scale that we use is based off of what does the tornado hit and how much damage does the tornado impart. And then the damage that is caused to that structure or tree or what have you um, is assigned a estimated wind speed. So if a tornado runs over nothing, it's probably going to get rated an EF0, EF1, or probably an EFU for EF unknown because it didn't hit enough, right? But for the most part, most of the tornadoes that occur in the United States fall in this zero to one category of on the EF scale and get less frequent, but still somewhat common towards two, a little bit less at three force and then ef5s being the absolute monsters fingers of god as people like love to call them because they will take almost any man-made structure that's not reinforced concrete and wipe it off the foundation and send it off into a field right pretty pretty vicious stuff but those tornadoes and generally violent tornadoes only make up one percent of total tornadoes that occur so fortunately they're not very common the sad part is is that the ones that do the most destruction and and kill the most people are the more violent ones, right? So the United States, while we get lots of tornadoes, you hear about them all the time on the news that some community in Mississippi or Oklahoma, maybe somewhere in the Midwest has been hit by a big tornado and it's just been devastated, right? Because that's one of probably many that have occurred.
0: Is it the sort of thing where something like an EF4, EF5 tornado is so large that the chances of it not hitting anything or causing damage is so small that, you know, the idea that a a tornado that large would end up being recorded as an EF one is unlikely because it's so massive.
1: Uh, yes. So the, the funny thing is, is, is that tornadoes, you cannot uh, totally tell the intensity based off of size. You have to see what it hits right. And then be able to evaluate what kind of strength that wind caused or that wind was and the damage it caused. Um, But the wider the tornado, obviously, that means the more chance it's going to hit something on the way over. So the scary ones are the big, giant tornadoes that are on the upper echelon of the EF scale. Those are the real scary ones because they hit the most, they usually last for a long time, and they're the most destructive.
0: And so just in terms of measuring the wind speed, um, it's not that you're actually measuring the wind speed, it's that you're... you're be able to estimate the wind speed based on the the kind of damage it causes is that that that's basically what you're saying right
1: absolutely yes
0: so so contrary to what i did see in twister there there is no way to actually measure the wind speed from the inside of the tornado is yeah that
1: right? you can definitely get something in there and measure the wind speed and, and we've had plenty of instrument packs do that especially recently Um, but the sad part is, is is that Twister gets it a little wrong. You know, they call that at one point after they all get hit by the tornado from hiding out at the movie, uh, the drive-in movie theater, then their dusty goes over the radio and tells them that, Hey, uh, NSSL is predicting an F5. Well, you don't know that. Like, there's no way to predict the intensity of a tornado. We've got lots of things that help us understand an environment that could support a range of intensity, but we can, we're never, at least to this point, able to slap on, yep, EF5 tomorrow, prep yourself, right? We're not there yet. We're not there yet.
0: Is it the sort of thing too, where, uh, let's say you have a a really bad storm system. um, Is it sort of an either or scenario in the sense of like, maybe that storm system might generate, let's say four or five smaller tornadoes. Or one giant one, or is it the kind of thing where it can be like a real mix and match, or like like what what have you seen in your experience?
1: It is very variable. There, you can get um, severe weather days where sometimes only one supercell. And to clarify, what a supercell is, it's just a rotating thunderstorm. So just simple term. So I use supercell interchangeably for that. Uh, Supercells generally produce the most tornadoes because they have an updraft above the ground that's rotating, and obviously that supports a tornado. Some situations, you may only get one supercell to form, and that supercell could produce one, maybe three, maybe ten tornadoes, depending on environmental factors. And sometimes, in especially more prolific tornado outbreaks, how you get multiple tornadoes is that you have multiple supercells. All next to each other, not interfering with one another, existing in their own little environments, producing multiple tornadoes. So, we've had outbreaks, and like, for example, you've probably heard about the uh, tornado that hit uh, Rolling Fork, Mississippi, maybe, or maybe you heard about the tornado that hit Little Rock, Arkansas recently. Um, those were part of um, regional and more wide severe weather outbreaks where multiple storms were environments favorable for tornadoes. And the larger that uh, parameter space is, the longer that storm has to exist in that parameter space. And if it can cycle, it can produce more tornadoes. So it's it's hard to say what's worse, one storm producing tons of tornadoes or one storm producing only a single one. Either way, the damage is done, right? So the important thing is to know like, wh- where do the tornadoes go, how long is it on the ground because the longer it's on the ground, the more likely it's to hit something, et cetera.
0: So I, I did do a little bit of research before I talked to you. <laughs> good. Um, good. And <laughs> according to my, according to my very basic, uh, my very basic, love it, uh, Wikipedia research here. Um, it says that the last time there was a recorded F five tornado was in 2013. Is that your understanding also, or is correct?
1: The last official rated E F five tornado was the more, um, more 2013 tornado, which was a pretty, pretty brutal tornado. Um, there in the weather community, there's a large debate of several tornadoes that have existed since that time. Uh, that potentially could have been ef5s but didn't hit something when it was at max intensity so we don't have the damage indicator or if a structure is really weak and not really built up to code it can't sustain ef5 damage because it would would have been annihilated well before that threshold right so you could have a a weakly constructed single story home get completely swept away but Come to find out that house probably would have been swept away at 150 miles an hour, which is a EF3, not 200 plus, right? Because anything past that point, it's gone regardless. So we can't issue that um, that damage indicator of an EF5 because it wouldn't have survived to that point to do the damage. So that's been like a large debate in the weather community, uh, which has caused some fun internet drama. <laughs> but... Uh, officially the last EF5 was in 2013 for now.
0: So, and I find that interesting because it seemed like to me, you know, looking at the list, like, you know, on average, it seemed like maybe every couple of years, every two or three years, um, there one would appear on the list. Um, and then I got to 2011, which if I counted correctly, (laughs) there were seven or eight F5 tornadoes recorded in 2011 alone. Um, Were you storm chasing in 2011?
1: I was. um, I did not get out chasing a whole lot at the time. I was about 14 or 15. So I was somewhere in early stages of our late stages of middle school or early stage high school. I don't really remember anymore at this point. That was years ago. Um, But I didn't end up seeing a lot of tornadoes in 2011. I think I only saw one because obviously I don't didn't go much further than uh, my parents were willing to drive me, so uh, at that time it was a lot more limited. But um, I'm very familiar with with 2011 and uh, all of the significant, prolific tornado outbreaks that occurred, and pretty pretty terrible tornadoes that occurred that year.
0: Yeah, I think the one and, and you know it's it, the other thing I wonder about too is is being someone who lives in the Northeast and has lived in the Northeast most of my life. Um, you know, I'm sure there's lots of tornado outbreaks, and that I never hear about because maybe they didn't cause enough damage to be national news or whatever. Um, but I think the one in particular that I really remember hearing about was the one in Joplin. Um, is there anything about that particular outbreak that maybe that was it? Just the damage, or the death toll, or is there something about it that really made it stand out from all of the other ones that year? Because clearly there were, there were lots of other ones that I didn't hear about, you know, living, you know, out in the Northeast.
1: Yeah, no, 2011 had some pretty ridiculous, (laughs) to say the least, uh, tornado outbreaks, especially the April 27th super outbreak. Um, That was an insane day. And then right after that, we had the Joplin, uh, you know, about a month later, we had the Joplin tornado, then two days after that, another high end tornado event with another EF5. So just Crazy couple of months in that year, where just it seemed like Mother Nature was pissed off, and and it there was no stopping the onslaught of tornadoes. But um, the Joplin tornado kind of is a special one because I, fun fact, I was also out chasing that day. Um, I was actually up in Iowa chasing other storms because there was an extremely large moderate risk that covered a lot of area, and uh, obviously my family went to church that Sunday. And then right after church, we went out and, and looked at storms, missed a couple of tornadoes, etc. You know, nothing crazy. But then come to we we got home, you know, I turned on the weather channel, and the first thing I see is Mike Bettis from the weather channel standing in a flattened city from Joplin, right next to the hospital. And that was my the first time I, I heard that the tornado occurred. I was obviously on a different storm, so I didn't actually know in the moment it happened until a little bit after the fact. But the the Joplin tornado was a pretty rare situation of something called storm mergers. And what happens is is there's when when updrafts go up, thunderstorm updrafts go up, they generally like to avoid other updrafts because when you bring up lots of air and moisture, it'll condense into precip and fall back out in a downdraft. Each updraft will have a downdraft. Well, if you're trying to breathe in while getting precipitated through by a different updraft, that usually kills off other storms. So you get this weird mixing called. Um, there's two situations where you have constructive in, uh, merging or destructive merging. Most of the time, when updrafts merge, if if unfavorably timed, uh, can be very disruptive to the storm. Can absolutely ruin its updrafts, choke it off from warm moist air, and just kill off the circulation or that or the updraft that is associated with that storm. And then maybe we look towards the updraft that just merged in with it. And maybe that's something we'll go on, but usually it's fairly destructive on the rare occasions. It's not, um, which was the Joplin case. A, um, it was a favorable environment by itself. Lots of strong wind shear, lots of instability And a single storm went up with a couple of other clusters of updrafts nearby. Just very high precipitation and whatnot, but very high sheared situation, especially in the lower levels of the the storm. So this updraft blew up, merged into it, gave it a punch of energy for simplicity here. Just gave it a big punch of energy that allowed it to absolutely just go nuts and go ridiculous. And that tornado, if you've seen videos of the Joplin tornado, go from a very tiny multi-vortex tornado, so little tiny vortices or basic vortices are little small tornadoes inside of apparent circulation. You know, you've probably seen videos of them before. Um, but then after about 30 seconds to a minute of that video starting, uh, it then grows into an a extremely large wedge-shaped tornado and then continues to growing to be a mile wide. And the scary part about it was... That by the time the radar showed that there was a tornado in progress and the reports coming in and they issued the warning and tried to sound off the sirens, the tornado was already at a mile wide in town, already taking out communications, already knocking out power. And, you know, tornado sirens don't work if there's no power. And that's why the tornado being so rain wrapped, so big, very little lead time on the warning. Led to a lot of people losing their lives. And it was a pretty, let alone like a bad situation, led to also then it being an extremely violent tornado because it had winds of well over 200 miles an hour and it was very slow moving. You know, it's a one mile wide entity that you have to move through. And if it's moving only at 15, 20 miles an hour, it's going to take a few minutes for it to actually pass that one mile, right? So it just sat and churned over the city for multiple minutes before it eventually got out of town and moved away. And that made the situation already a bad situation to an extremely deadly situation.
0: I think, I remember at the time hearing about it, I guess I was, let's see, in 2011, um, I would have been, what, like 27 years old maybe? I remember at the time, because I heard that it was a mile wide um, and that some of these tornadoes do get to be a mile wide. And then realizing that my town where I live in Rhode Island is basically like around five miles by one mile in terms of its shape and size. So the idea that like if this tornado was coming across my town from a, you know, in, in a west to east fashion, um, the, in, the entire town would be under this tornado all at once, which is just mind blowing <laughs> to me. It's terrifying. Uh, yeah. Scary. <laughs> so, so did it, you know… At the time, you said you were around 14, 15 years old. Did it, did it give you any pause in, in two thousand eleven? That like, or was was it more like I need to get my license now because this is like this is it only made made you more excited about chasing them?
1: You know, that's that is a really good question. Um, Twenty eleven for me was really difficult um, for a lot of reasons. The tornado insanity and deaths made it worse. Um, because for me, and even to this point in my life, I've not experienced a lot of tornadoes that have been deadly. Um, I've actually only seen one tornado that has ever been deadly. I have helped in search-and-rescue situations, being one of the first people on a scene after a tornado goes through, Um, but I've been very fortunate to not have to deal with having to do search-and-rescue and and come across death, right, or um, be in situations where I see a tornado and then watch it claim someone's life, right? I've not been in that situation, fortunately, and I'm extremely grateful for that. It allows me to enjoy the meteorology experience, the storm chaser experience to the fullest because no one lost their lives, and that's the important thing, right? Because we can rebuild homes, we can rebuild buildings, but if we lose someone, you can't get that back. So for me, the loss of life and destruction of property is a little bit more personal to me, more so than probably some of the more prolific storm chasers that I'm friends with. not to speak, you know, against them or anything, but for me, it's very personal for me. I I don't like seeing damage. I don't like seeing people's lives ruined. And I hate knowing that someone lost their life. So in 2011, uh, it, like I said earlier, it just felt like an onslaught of tornadoes, just situation after situation of outbreak after outbreak. April had a major tornado outbreak almost every weekend for the four weeks of April, which was ridiculous. And you probably won't hear much about those outbreaks because the 27th happened where there were 200 in a single day, which blew away every record we ever had up till the, like through the 1800s of that many tornadoes occurring and multiple violent tornadoes occurring on that day as well. And so, you know, we have this experience of hundreds of people losing their lives, communities getting flattened repeatedly day after day after day. And it hurt me. Like I I really had to look inside of myself and ask those those tough questions of like, why do I really love this stuff? Why, why do I enjoy something that is killing people? Why do I enjoy something that's ruining people's families, their lives? And that's honestly the 2011 year, I think changed something in me where I wasn't just focused on seeing cool weather anymore. It was seeing cool weather And also realizing, I want to make a difference in this world and understand why tornadoes are occurring, how can we predict them better, and save people's lives because, in my opinion, and you'll hear this from me time and time again, I I believe that no one should ever lose their life in a tornado, and it is 100% preventable, always. The reason why it doesn't is for a multitude of reasons, and we probably will never get to that point in all of my life but i still feel like no one should ever lose their life in a tornado because it is a forecastable event and there are things you can do to prepare yourself sometimes you can't get out of the way of a tornado but having a plan having a safe place to go and trusting in your plan and taking swift action could save your life and that's partially why now i i'm in college i'm I am um, a junior, about to finish my junior year here at Iowa State. Um, so I've got one year left. And I want to be, I want to focus on tornadoes because um, I want to make a difference. Like I just, like I said, I, I just am so tired of seeing all these situations of people saying, you know, it came without warning or we had no no idea what to do, you know, didn't know there was a tornado. Like that makes me sad that clearly we're failing in some aspect and and there's more to improve. So I I will still always be fascinated like the 12-year-old boy <laughs> that I always am, right? When I'm out chasing storms, I always still geek out about cool things like that, but I think my motivation over the years has changed and and 2011 absolutely is is a reason for that.
0: That's incredible, man. That's incredible. And I you know, it it's, it's so it's interesting to me that you you feel like it's so that the, the the loss of life and the d- disaster part of it, right? Um, it is preventable. Obviously, you can't prevent buildings from being destroyed, you know, but you can prevent the loss of life. Um, but I, you know, just as an outsider, that's something I still hear is that, um, you know, that the warning systems aren't that great, um, and that while the storms are forecastable, that the you know the um, sirens that alert people to a tornado or the the tornado warnings or whatever aren't aren't accurate enough for people do you think it's just a matter of people waiting too long to seek shelter or it, maybe people not having the proper shelter available to them
1: no the both of those are absolutely valid reasons um like i said there's a lot of reasons why someone was either unable to get to appropriate shelter or they got lucky, or they didn't care, right? There, there's lots of reasons, um, both of which what you shared as well, great reasons. There's, there's a lot of reasons that go into why someone loses their life into a tornado. Um, sometimes it's the fact that their shelter just wasn't good enough, and the tornado was just too strong. Most homes, well-built homes, will survive. And when I say survive, I'm not saying we'll replace a window and we'll see you you tomorrow, right? I'm talking surviving, meaning you don't have it wiped away off the foundation of the home, right? That your safe place remains a pile of rubble. Well, the violent fours and fives, most homes will be completely swept away. Hence why we advocate for basements or storm shelters, right? Those are expensive, but communities can get them put in etc there's there's ways we can go around it you know bad places to be are mobile homes underneath um, road crossings under bridges like there's just there's bad places to be and then there's good places to be now i do think that while our technology has improved significantly on predicting tornadoes and warning them there absolutely is a over-reliance on one tornado sirens and two people don't believe warnings as much as they used to because um, at least how the system is currently based if the national weather service issues a, a warning box a polygon it you know looks like a nice little box or whatnot on you know if you turn on the weather channel or your local news station you'll see what a tornado warning box looks like and if a county is any sliver inside of that warning box the entire county will sound off the tornado sirens well, that means potentially people 20, 30 miles away have who have basically zero reason to take shelter are now being told to take shelter. Nothing happens to them. They complain to their local meteorologists of why they're cutting off The Bachelor when there's a tornado warning 30 miles away, telling them that they don't care about what they're doing, stop listening to warnings, and then you have a big giant tornado rolling up on them a couple of years later and they don't believe anymore. That's a major problem, which... The I know entities like the National Weather Service, the National Hurricane Center, et cetera, are really working hard at reducing the boy who cried wolf situation, right? Because overwarning causes sens- a lack of sensitivity. To issue it to the warnings that are issued because then people are more likely to be like ah it's not a problem i don't have to go take shelter it's always missed our house i don't have to care about it it's missed us every time you know why do i why should i believe that it should happen now and that is a deadly deadly problem that we have in the country
0: it's you know it seems to me like um, it's a problem that weathermen or weather forecasters have in general is Um, and we've had this issue in the Northeast with snowstorms, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, yes, predicting, (laughs) you know, predicting, um, you know, a foot of snow and then getting two inches, you know, and, and, and then what happens is the next time they come along and predict a foot of snow, people are like, oh please, they always over predict, you know, they just want ratings or whatever. Um, you know, but then what will happen is, is the opposite will happen where someone will, they'll, they'll predict two or three inches and we'll end up getting a foot. And people will be pissed off that the prediction was, you know, was so far off in the other direction. So it's sort of it does seem like sort of a uh, a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation where it's like unless you get it perfectly right, somebody's going to be pissed at you. And so I, I would imagine that if there's the, the potential for um, a very very devastating weather event, they're going to err on the side of that happening and warning people because. This way, at least they can say, well, I got, you know, maybe I got it a little wrong, but at least nobody's killed. Um, as opposed to, oh, I got it a little wrong, um, but now all these, you know, a bunch of people died because it was way worse or, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, it's, I was sitting here just laughing because I'm like, you know, you said you, you're, you're probably a really good person to say you're m- more likely what the general public is. And if even you understand the, well, if they call for it and it doesn't work, then people don't believe. And then when they call for something, you know, not as bad, and it happens to just overperform, then everyone gets mad too. It's kind of funny that you also recognize that that's a problem, and it proves the point, right? That there there's a warning and dissemination of information issue that uh, the weather enterprise has to the uh, the rest of the general public, right? So the issue that we have now is working through ways to try to overcome that gap um, and make more personalized forecasts and the the issue also especially with the northeast there are millions of people in a very tight region what mother nature does not have absolutes in the way she behaves right and one degree shift one way means someone could get something and the other who could have does not and If that means like, hey, there's a swath of snowfall past the interstate, and that's where the snow came, but the weatherman said it would get south of the interstate, and what we only saw rain, well, they're dumb, right? And it's like, yeah, well, you try forecasting for a less than a mile difference, (laughs) right? (laughs) On something that is hundreds of miles wide of a storm system, right? Spanning continents and try to get that nailed down to perfect miles. Meteorologists do as good of a job as we can. But sometimes, and again, people are people. Sometimes we make faults. We have false biases. And we, we work to overcome them, right? That's kind of the job of, of a broadcast meteorologist, the National Weather Service, or even private sector meteorologist in general, right? The goal is to keep getting better with time. And sometimes Mother Nature just wants to humble you. And there's nothing we can do about it.
0: You know, I often think about the fact that um, so I, I was born in 1984 and I've I've never lived in a world without really good weather forecasting. I mean, just historically speaking, I mean, even the weather forecasting that I grew up with in the early 1990s is like historically speaking is amazing. Right. Um, and I always think it's odd that like it's it's one of the greatest human achievements like the ability to predict what the weather is going to be um even like five days in advance sometimes um yet it seems it's so underappreciated
1: oh my goodness yeah <laughs> the second the bachelor comes on and we cu- anyone cuts in over that people want blood
0: <laughs> people are well people are so used to it you know, it's, you know, I was, and it's, I feel like it's the same with lots of technological advancements. Um, you know, I was thinking the other day, um, for some reason I was the other day I was thinking about my dishwasher and I was thinking about how, you know, I bought my dishwasher 10 years ago. It cost me probably 350 bucks 10 years ago. So it's basically cost me like 10 cents a day to not have to ever wash dishes by hand, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. But you know, up until, you know, what the 1950s, 1960s, there was no people, nobody had dishwashers. Like that's all you did was wash dishes by hand. The idea that some machine would do it. for So like, but like, I'm, you're so used to it that you don't appreciate it. It's just, it's like, you know, and if your dishwasher breaks and you have to wash hand, dishes for by hand for a few days, it's like, you're cursing the sky. Um, <laughs> right. it's the same with weather. I feel like now, Another thing I wanted to ask you about, and since especially since you, you study this as well, um, is the next sort of giant leap when it comes to weather, the ability to control it?
1: You know, I would love to say that we will have a chance at controlling weather because that would reduce the loss of life and the loss of property, which is what the mission of meteorologists is to do, is to help protect life and property, Right uh but here's the issue we are really small (laughs) when it comes to the grand scheme of the atmosphere and it takes a lot of things over a long period of time for humanity to affect the mother nature which is why climate change is a problem because we keep throwing pollutants into the atmosphere for a 100 years it's eventually going to have an effect but side story uh with controlling weather, I don't know if we'll ever get to that point because the it's just orders of a magnitude larger than we are. And it takes so much energy to counteract something that is just naturally flowing. right? So maybe one day, if humanity can figure out its problems, we can work together and find ways to tamper Mother Nature, understand our climate system better, and bring severe you know, impacts down. I would love to say we can get there, but for right now that's it's kind of a pipe dream. That's kind of sad, but uh, there are things we can do, but it's pretty small scale.
0: Are there ethical questions along with that too? Just in the sense of like, you know, be- because everything is so interconnected. Like, if you, even if you caused a rainstorm, let's say, like, say there was a drought, and you could, and you could do things to the weather to make it rain you know is that rainstorm or is is that influx of whatever it is you're doing to the atmosphere to make this happen going to have some other effect somewhere else on the globe that you can't even fathom right is that would would that be part of the calculation too oh that would
1: absolutely have to be involved because the the climate system and the the weather system that we have in at least on our side of the hemisphere and just even globally is very sensitive to rapid sudden changes Um, the reason why we have storms, hurricanes, tornadoes is because there is an imbalance that was created. And so mother nature is trying to equalize the balance. And that's why we get storm systems is that there's a energy imbalance and mother nature is trying to course correct. That's why we have climate. That's why we have varying weather through seasons, et cetera. Right. Um, driven a lot by how close we are to the sun, the tilt of the earth, et cetera. All these things lead into things that affect our weather. So maybe it's kind of just a, it's a tough situation that I just don't think we're, we're close enough to be able to do much about it right now. And, um, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do. It just, I think there are still a lot of things that are well without, you know, not within our reach.
0: It is so fascinating. And, uh, you know, I just, the weather is very fascinating. It really is. And I think that, I think even for the average person, I mean, obviously you're into it to a level that most people aren't, but I do think the average person has an above-sized interest in weather. I mean, it's something they talk about on the local news, they spend at least half of the broadcast talking about the weather. I, I think. I do think people even subconsciously are are fascinated by it. And so I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it um, as being the expert that you are. But before I let you go, I want to, I do want to spend some time talking about your photography. Um, When did you start taking photographs of these storms?
1: Ooh, so let's see. I probably started taking photos whenever we had our first camera, probably of some pretty cloud in the sky right (laughs) when i was a kid probably but uh i'd say probably the first time that uh i honestly probably captured severe weather on a camera was probably the probably the video i took of my first tornado to be honest um i've probably taken pictures of pretty thunderstorms nearby you know at earlier points in my life but Um, recording really garbage filmed on a potato camcorder (laughs) of the first tornado I saw was probably the first time that I like intentionally wanted to capture it. And then after a couple of years, my parents got a family DSLR. I think it was like a Canon 4i, something like that. And we had that for a couple of years. And I, whenever my mom was willing to let me touch it, (laughs) because at the time that was a decent chunk of money uh, for our family. So, um, you know, they wanted it to be treated nicely. And so I obviously could only use it under supervision. Um, but that led me to have some experience holding a, a camera and taking a couple of photos, which I would use to take pictures of a few more tornadoes after that point point. and come to 2018 after I had, um, gone away for uh, a religious mission for a couple of years, I came back home and was going to start college and whatnot. And, I had a, a really high-paying job, finished it, came home, and was like, I, I need a car, and I need a camera. And so I went and, and purchased a vehicle, and and I went and scoured and found my first DSLR, which was a Canon T6i. Still have it to this day. Um, I mean, that was only, what, five, six years ago, right? Um, but that was my first camera, and I was so excited to be able to take it around and, and start actually figuring out how to try to take pictures that don't look like garbage (laughs) that don't look like i just went click (laughs) and move on i I wanted to finally be able to say like hey i'm i'm learning how to use a camera and honestly like my fascination for weather and has really helped me to really grow in my passion of loving photography because it's capturing a moment in time that'll never exist again and especially with with weather um Even though we get tons and tons of tornadoes, there will never be that same moment that you're in next to a tornado ever again because that tornado will only exist, like similar to human life. We only get this one life. That tornado or that storm only has a couple of hours of time. And it's up to me as the photographer to know what I'm doing and capture a storm in whatever moment I find myself next to it is because that moment will never exist again. And so then taking that photo, taking it into Lightroom, you know, to touch up, like I've personally, if this, because everybody has their own philosophies with photo editing and and Photoshop, et cetera, I I personally try to keep towards more, um, just make my images clear, sharp, but fairly close to reality. I don't want to blow things out of proportion or anything. So I try to keep it fairly natural. Um, But clear and sharp is what I try to go for. So, and I I keep these moments of these storms as almost like memories. Um, My storm chases, especially over this many years, they're almost like time capsules because I see the image and I immediately am taken back to that moment, that experience. And I know where I was, where I was in life, what I was experiencing in that moment, the emotions I felt that day. And it's, it's transparent it's, it's gone from this, like, I'm just taking a pretty photo of a storm to like, a, almost like a self diary of of my life experiences. So it's been, it's been fascinating. It's been a wonderful journey. And I'm absolutely loving it.
0: Hunter, thank you so much for joining me. I, you know, I, I really hope you'll come back on and talk to me at some point in the future. Um, I, I feel like I have so many questions like I I don't have time for right now. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface on the world of tornadoes and weather in general. And and the fact that you're really there sort of on the front lines of these still somewhat mysterious storms, at least to most of us, um, is fascinating. Um, But I want you to tell everyone who is listening um, where they can learn more uh, about you and how they can check out your photography and um, how they might even be able to purchase it
1: yeah um and again eric i'm super grateful that you had me on the show i i love doing these because i just get to geek out and talk about myself for a little bit who doesn't love that right but hell yeah i i love to be able to talk about weather and if you haven't guessed that from you know this conversation that i'm not a geek and a nerd that loves weather then you've missed something i i love talking about it and i i will share as much as i can with everybody because it's just so great to me um but for me, you can find me on social medias. I'm generally most active on, on Twitter under StormChaserHunterF. StormChaser has no vowels. It's all one big giant mess all put together because that's what Twitter is. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube under Falks. Pretty simple. You'll probably find some simple videos on there. And I do have a photo store. Uh, it is the realworldphotography.net. Uh, it's a website you can go and read a little self-biography I wrote about myself. And also see some of the photography I have up for sale and I look forward to putting more on there and and uh, taking you along the the journey that is my life and hope you guys enjoy it, cause I'm I couldn't be happier.
0: Hunter, thanks so much, man. Thanks again, I'll talk to you soon.
1: Absolutely, thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Shut Up You're Always Talking podcast. I gotta go. Oh, where I mean, we just got it. I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. All right, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Huh? Please like, share, and subscribe.